Dr. Benner with the Shelbourne Knee Center podcast, and today we're going to be talking about surgical techniques for patellar realignment. This is a part of a multi-part series that we've already got two previous installments on. Last week, we talked to Dr. Shelbourne, uh, the namesake for our clinic, to discuss the history and development of the patellofemoral algorithm, and the week before that, we talked about initial evaluation and a classification system that we've come up. Today, we want to talk about the surgical techniques themselves. This is going to be something that's important for surgeons to understand when we talk about these techniques, what exactly we're talking about, and some technical pearls uh, to make them work that we've that we've learned over time, but also from a physical therapy standpoint to understand uh, when we send patients along with these type of uh, these type of procedures, what we're actually doing and uh, what rehabilitation implications that those have as well. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at the SKC Podcast. You can find us on our YouTube or Facebook pages for the Shelbourne Center Podcast or email us at the SKC Podcast at gmail.com. And if you could like and follow, that'd be great. Leave us a comment for those that come behind you who are interested in the podcast. Dr. Benner, I'm glad you mentioned that rehab piece because I think this will be a good precursor episode for next week's episode. We're going to have one of our physical therapists from the office in to discuss the rehab, both non-operative for patellofemoral instability, but mainly we're going to focus on those post-operative management and what that may look like for these three surgeries. So I think the the surgical technique has a lot to do with that and and why we do what we do from a rehab standpoint. So uh, for that reason, I think it's going to be a good episode tonight uh, leading into next week. So uh, before we get started, uh, just can you quick quickly recap those three surgeries that Dr. Shelbourne had went over and we went over with the classification system before we get started on the surgical technique of those three. Yeah, well, the classification system really allows us to be able to break them up into components uh, so we can think about them uh, in, in their component places and, and and to compartmentalize them into ones that have predisposing anatomy and don't, ones that have asymmetry and soft tissue disruptions and, and, and do not, and, and also the imaging findings that are associated with those. And from those, that really guides our treatment uh, down a pathway of three main options for surgical reconstruction um, when, it, when it comes to patellofemoral instability. One being the most simple would be a medial imbrication and a lateral release. Those are both done to the medial and lateral retinacular structures that are medial and lateral just in the parapatellar area. Uh, For the medial imbrication lateral release, we're just trying to centralize the patella back into the middle and take care of the soft tissue tearing that's happened. As as everyone knows, in order to dislocate the patella, you kind of have to tear the medial retinaculum uh, in order for the patella to come all the way out. And to put it back in the middle, if it lands in the middle and can heal in that area, that's great. If it doesn't and it's either torn or if it's healed with laxity, then there can be a possibility of recurrent instability. So medial retinacular imbrication and lateral retinacular release is one surgical option. The other two are tibial tubercle osteotomies and uh, one called the Elmsley triot, which uh, involves cutting the tibial tubercle and moving it medially, and then also tibial tubercle distalization, where we are distalizing the tubercle. And sometimes we do both of these. If we think the patella needs to go medially and it needs to go distally, then we'll do both of them as opposed to doing one or the other. And these are often coupled with a medial imbrication lateral release at the same time, depending on uh, which of those uh, groups that we that we talked about before, uh, how, how they're classified. So uh, hopefully by by the end of this discussion, uh, everybody will know kind of what those indications are and what these procedures are and some technical pearls to help you perform them. Now, let's start on the more simple side of things, the all soft tissue surgery with the medial imbrication and lateral release. What are the primary goals that you're looking to accomplish with this surgery and what is the technique you use to accomplish those goals? 
So in order to relate it back to the classification system, these, this would be the surgery that you would do on the uh, on the type 1 or the type 2, uh, where the patient has no predisposing anatomy. In this case, the patient has a one-time dislocation that overcomes their relatively normal anatomy uh, and leaves them with a propensity for recurrent dislocations. In grade ones, the patient still has a centralized patella, but may have a retinacular tear on MRI scan. Uh, these patients often can be treated non-surgically, uh, but for surgical treatment, if you're going to do that, you do want to reconstitute the medial retinacular structures and imbricate them to make sure the patella stays there and that the medial retinaculum is reattached back to the femur. Uh, and then in those grade two patients, these are people that, excuse me, the type two patients, people that have asymmetry on the merchant's view, but have no predisposing anatomy. In this case, the medial retinaculum is torn and the patella is sitting more lateral than the normal one on the opposite side. And we're just trying to get the patella back in the middle where it belongs and then allow the patient's normal anatomy uh, to really centralize it and drive it back where it's supposed to be. Are those two things ever independent of each other? I know most of the times that I've seen this be performed working where I'm at now is a medial imbrication with a lateral lease. However, at a previous job working at a sports medicine orthopedic center, we would commonly get referrals from a, a particular surgeon group that did lateral leases really with a lot of patellofemoral pain syndrome. So I'm not even sure that's really the same same issue we're talking about, but it was really a, an isolated lateral release. Are you ever seeing those independently or are you always doing those together? I don't know that I've ever done an isolated lateral release, uh, either arthroscopically or open for patella maltracking. I think if the if the patella is being driven laterally, it's either being driven laterally by abnormal anatomy or the patient has normal anatomy and they've had a traumatic event that's overcome their normal anatomy. Um, and when that's the case, the patella goes laterally pretty much 100% of the time. And if you're not doing something to either change the patient's anatomy to drive it back medially and into the center of the trochlea or just reconstituting those medial soft tissues, I don't have an indication for an isolated lateral release. Now, last episode, we talked about over constraints with uh, pulling it too far medial on the imbrication side, and we are able to combat that with the rehab in that we bend the knee and, and really centralize that patella uh, where the knee wants it to go. Is there anything from a surgical technique that would make you think that the over constraint could be a problem, or is that more of a post-op rehab issue? I think that's a post-op rehab issue personally. I don't know that I can necessarily overcome the patient's normal anatomy by over-constraining it with a medial imbrication. I don't think I can really tie it too tightly to the point where the, the, the body's normal anatomy couldn't drive it back to the middle. Now, that being said, if you don't bend the knee and you allow it to heal in a over-constrained medialized position, I guess theoretically you could do that, but that's not, knock on wood, that's not something I've ever seen uh, where we've ended up with medial instability from over-constraining or over-tightening a medial imbrication lateral release. And I think the reason is we only really do those in an isolated fashion if the patient has normal uh, otherwise normal bony anatomy, uh, that even if we do over-constrain that medial side, if we bend the knee, it's able to loosen and find its home uh, that's driven there by the patient's normal anatomy. Now, luckily, I've never really seen somebody be in the over-constraint situation post-operatively, but is that something you're going to pick up on imaging or is that purely symptom-driven? 
I don't know that I've ever seen it, to be honest with you. I know I've had patients that have come in and told me before that they think the, the patella is going out immediately, and it happens so infrequently that I, I would I would venture to say that I, I don't think I've ever seen it. Um, and, and you do hear people talking about it at meetings a little bit, though. People will talk about doing lateral retinacular lengthening as opposed to lateral retinacular release uh, because they're worried about medial overconstraint or even medial instability of the patella. That's just not something I've ever seen before, and, and honestly, something that with our current techniques doesn't even enter my mind. So staying with this medial imbrication lateral release, what are some specific technical surgical perils that you would have for the surgeons listening to this? Well, it's a pretty simple operation. That's the part that I like about it the most. Is it's it's not very uh, it's not very um, difficult. It's not not a difficult not a very it's a very user friendly technique uh, that is pretty easy to perform. Um, we do this open both sides. Uh, we make two small parapatellar incisions, one on the lateral side and one on the medial side. You definitely could make a midline incision, a uh, single incision, which would have to be a little bit bigger. But you could definitely make a midline incision and carry that over to the medial side and do the imbrication. Carry it over to the lateral side and do the uh, do the release but we like to do this open as opposed to arthroscopically having done that arthroscopically i have a hard time um doing that arthroscopically i think it's uh, personally for me i think it's more difficult to uh, know exactly how deep or in that case how superficial you're going when you've gotten through the retinaculum but not gotten into the soft tissues and especially if you're using a pump arthroscopically you can really get a, a really large bulge outside the uh, out to the lateral side through that lateral retinacular release that I like to avoid so it's a relatively small incision I prefer to do this open on the lateral side we make we make an incision about a centimeter off of the lateral edge of the patella and really go all the way up to the vastus lateralis and at least make sure we get down distally uh, past the distal pole of the patella I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's essential to go any down any further than that uh, all the way down to the joint line I think as long as you get distal to that distal pole of the patella on the lateral side, that's probably far enough. And on the medial side, this is something I had to learn from Dr. Shelbourne as well. Um, you know, I, I, I did the insole fellowship and we did a lot of proximal realignments where the VMO was kind of sewed up onto the anterior surface uh, of the medial side of the patella. Uh, and, and he really taught me to try to get that medial retinaculum tucked underneath the patella as close to the articular surface as possible. And in order to do that, uh, oftentimes when we do this operation, the patella is the patella retinaculum is already healed medially and it's just healed in a lengthened position so we go to the medial side of the patella about a centimeter off the medial side of the patella and make an incision from the vmo uh, again just down distally to the patella not necessarily all the way down to the joint line um, and separate the medial retinaculum uh, in that area we then uh, do kind of a pants over vest uh imbrication by taking the suture from top to bottom on the patella side. Uh, so the strand, the, the free end is uh, on the on the anterior face of the of the patella, and then take kind of a longitudinal bite from proximal to distal through the retinaculum, and then come back on the patella side from bottom to top. And by doing that, the two ends that you tie together are on the superficial, on the top side of the retinaculum, and the femoral side is actually pulled underneath the patella, almost down into the articular surface, and uh, that helps to reduce it back to its anatomical location. So we do that with three stitches, the most important one being the most proximal one uh, to really get a good imbrication at that level. And then when you do that, uh, the the 
imbricated medial retinaculum is often kind of rolled in that area and can be kind of prominent. So uh, one way that we've taken care of that is we actually run a stitch uh, over the top of that kind of in a in just a running stitch, run, simple running stitch fashion over the rolled edge of the retinacular imbrication to kind of flatten it out. It also helps to reinforce the repair. And then we also, then after we're done with that, we make sure we can bend the knee fully because uh, we don't want to tie it so tightly that we can't bend the knee. Uh, I don't think I've ever had that happen, um, but we always make sure to bend the knee afterwards so we can uh, get full range of motion once we're done. Excellent. Now, how about the situation where there's a, um, a need to medialize the tibial tubercle and doing that triop procedure? What specific technique are you using with this operation? So if I'm just medializing the tubercle and I'm not distalizing it, it's a little bit easier to perform and I worry less about moving the knee postoperatively. Um, Dr. Shelbourne underwent an, uh, kind of a, an evolution over time on fixation techniques. When he first started, he was doing a single screw uh, in the tibial tubercle, uh, one proximally, but distally, then sometimes it would kick up. So he eventually figured out that the more tension side of that osteotomy fixation is the distal portion of the tibial tubercle osteotomy. So he started putting a second more distal screw. When that happens, sometimes you would still have a stress riser and would not get good cortical apposition and filling into that distal portion of the osteotomy. And because of that, he started to put a small plate on the uh, tibial tubercle with those two screws in it and then had a resident that suggested, you know, you'd probably get that to heal better if you put the plate across the fracture site or across the osteotomy site. So uh, then he moved on to at least a three-hole plate where he had two screws in the tibial tubercle and one screw distal to the osteotomy. And then the, the problem with that stress riser kind of went away. Um, so that, that's, that's been good for us. Uh, it's been a good innovation uh, over time and a good evolution of a fixation technique to use a plate. A lot of people are hesitant, if I talk to other surgeons about that, to, the, to put a plate on the anterior uh, tibia, especially on the tibial tubercle in thinner people where there's not a lot of soft tissue. Um, the, the plate that we use is a small frag third tubular plate. It's a pretty low profile plate. And uh, when you contour it to the uh, to the tibial tubercle, uh, only about 20% of the time, I would say, do we have to go back and take the hardware out almost always. It's not that prominent for people, not that symptomatic for people and that we can leave it in. Uh, one thing that I have had good luck with recently is, uh, is d using lag screw technique. I used to just uh, do the osteotomy, push the, push the uh, tubercle piece at the top medially and uh and then fix it with the with the plate uh at that point um with uh just position screws just drilling the screws and putting them in putting them in uh in, in its position screws over time i started to think i would, wasn't getting good enough compression so i started drilling those with lag technique uh, and over drilling the proximal cortex and by doing that i was able to get better compression across the fracture site and i was happy with that but i didn't think i'd really notice that much of a difference however post-surgery the patients were really able to i felt like tolerate that a little bit better move the leg a little bit more aggressively lift the leg a little bit more easily easily uh, once we used a, a, comp a compression screw a lag, a lag technique for those screws has been has been a good uh, thing to do as well i also like to keep my osteotomy thick uh, i did a i did a uh a, a paper when I was a when I was a fellow about tibial tubercle osteotomies and total knee replacements, and one of the technical pearls that uh, Dr. Leo Whiteside, who's a you know legend of joint replacement, talked about keeping a thicker a thicker osteotomy of about a centimeter thick and a longer osteotomy in total knees. He would do one that was six to eight centimeters long. I don't know that you necessarily need eight centimeters, but I usually try to get five or six centimeters of the tibial tubercle osteotomy, so you have a broad area of cancellous bone for fixation, uh, and I feel like that's been 
a good innovation for me as well. Um, and I also do this with an osteotome. I don't do it with a saw. Um, I dissect down on the lateral side of the tibial tubercle and uh, outline the lateral edge of the tibial tubercle and go all the way up to the more proximal extent of the uh, tibial tubercle where the patella tendon inserts. And there's a small bursa between the tendon and the bone. Always make sure to get my finger between the tendon and bone and put a, put a, an Army Navy retractor in that area so I can see the, the attachment site really clearly and then use a broad flat osteotome to create a centimeter thick and about six centimeter long osteotomy at the very end we can start to taper it out uh, so you don't have to have a sharp edge there at the end where it's you know at a 90 degree angle you can kind of taper it at the end and then just push it over a lot of times you can just crack it by pushing it over if, if it's really thin on the distal end of that and then once we pushed it over and we've gotten it over to the area that we want we stick a k-wire in it and that gives us provisional fixation then we take out our plate make sure we have uh, the uh, appropriate size plate that we want to get the screws where we want with one screw distal to the osteotomy and more and then uh, the rest along the course of the uh, tibial tubercle um, and lag technique and we'll make sure to put up with the uh, with the um, some pictures of this on our twitter and facebook our twitter and facebook and uh, instagram pages so you can see what this looks like post-surgery so obviously with this technique with the you know bony fixation is much different than the than the proximal realignment with the soft tissue medial imbrication lateral release and it sounds like with the medial imbrication lateral release you're getting those patients moving pretty quickly getting into to high degrees of flexion early mainly to center that patella but also just for benefits that that brings with it what are the initial post-op orders, the post-op instructions that you're giving the patients that have a triot in comparison to or in contrast to the patients having a medial implication and lateral release? It's not really that different, honestly. Um, you know, I'm pretty aggressive in allowing patients to do a straight leg raise to lift their leg. I mean, in, in, on one hand, we're thinking, you know what, that that tibial tubercle is only really attached with a plate and screws, so we probably shouldn't let them do any active extension. Um, I don't have them do active extension against resistance necessarily, but I will allow them to lift their leg if they can. And with with getting lag screw fixation, good plate fixation of the tubercle osteotomy, uh, you know. That I feel pretty comfortable doing that. Uh, you know, that's something Dr. Shelbourne taught me as well that uh, that you can learn from patients who do it when you tell them not to. Like we'd have patients in the CPM machine, they we'd come in and say, "Hey, hey, how, how's the knee doing today? How's it feeling?" And they'd say, "It's great. Look what I can do." And they'd lift their leg up, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, no! Well, actually, maybe I should let you do that." And that that happened enough times where I started to think if people can do that easily and it's not causing any problems, why should I restrict them from doing that? And especially in triots where we're not moving the tibial tubercle distally at all, we can be pretty similar to what we do with the imbrications alone, um, when, even when we do a little bit of bony work as well. And we'll get into more detail when we talk to the therapy staff on the rehab after this type of surgery, but are you instructing them to use a an immobilizer or a brace or anything to protect them, at least in the early time point after surgery? Yeah, in all of these operations, we do, we do have patients use knee immobilizers only when they're up. Uh, we want them to be safe with weight bearing. We don't want them to weight bear with their knee in a bent position. That does we we feel like put them at risk for you know overcoming their fixation and, and, and causing a loss of fixation. I know we talked on the the last episode with Dr. Shelbourne about what we feel like are some downsides of splinting or casting people in extension for a long period of time, and I still agree with that 100. percent 
However, when the patient's up ambulating in the early time period when they don't necessarily have very good leg control, I don't want them to slip and fall and have to catch themselves with their with their quad actively early on after surgery. So we will put them in a mobilizer only when they're up out of bed putting weight on it. We will allow full weight bearing in the immobilizer though. And then once they can lift their leg easy easily, they can do a seated knee extension easily with good leg control, then we'll transition them out of the out of the brace. And that's that's true of the uh, imbrications as well as the triots and even the distalizations as well. But they kind of progress at those uh, at those different speeds. The imbrications probably progress the quickest with that. The triots or medializations uh, progress a little bit more a little bit slower with that, and the distalizations progress a little bit more slowly even than those. So lastly, you mentioned there was three options for uh, surgery for this patient population. The last would be the distalization where you're taking that medial tibial tubercle and taking it down. Can you describe the surgical technique for these patients? Yeah, the distalization is a little bit of a different animal. Uh, with the triots, when we're just moving it medially and we're not moving it distally at all, a lot of that periosteum stays intact. A lot of the soft tissues around the tibial tubercle osteotomy stay intact, and it's not quite as detached from the tibia as it is in a distalization. In a distalization, you're completely removing the tibial tubercle from the tibia. You're freeing up the soft tissues on either side because they have to be free in order for you to pull the tibia the, the, the tubercle distally uh, before you fix it. So it's a different animal from a surgical technique perspective. You can really put that tibial tubercle wherever you want to put it. And that's good and bad news when it comes to this is that you can, uh, you do have pretty good leeway on what to be able to do with the tubercle. But, um, you know, sometimes it's difficult to know exactly how far to move it uh, one direction or the other. Uh, the medialization portion is a little bit of a feel. It's actually a little bit more medialization at the top of the osteotomy than the bottom. That's one technique pearl that uh, it's really the top of the osteotomy where the tibial tubercle uh, has the attachment to the patella tendon, and that's the part that we need to medialize even more than the distal portion. So you can tip it a little bit when you and medialize the proximal portion, but not the distal portion. Um, but with, with distalizations, one of the most important things is figuring out how much we want to distalize, and we have a couple different ways of doing that. Dr. Shelborn mentioned last week, females patella tendon length is about 46 millimeters, male patella tendon length is about 49 to 50. So those are just some useful kind of averages to have in mind. We also think, and we've shown with our, our, our radiographs, that if you bend the knee to about 60 degrees, the inferior articular surface of the patella is usually at about the level of Blumensatz line extended. So you can use that relationship to see how far above Blumensatz line uh, the inferior surface of the patella sits on that preoperative imaging. The last one, and probably the most important one, is a quad contraction uh, lateral view, a full extension quad contraction lateral view that we get. And that shows how far the inferior articular surface of the patella comes up above the trochlea. And that measurement usually dictates how far that I move, move it down. But I really use all, all three of those. Once I decide how much I want to move the tubercle down, the outlining of the tubercle is the same as we talked about in the triot. Uh, we make an incision on the lateral side of the tibial tubercle. We kind of outline a one centimeter thick and six centimeter long osteotomy starting at the patella tendon attachment, which we make sure to get a finger and then a retractor behind the tendon in that bursa that's between the, the uh, tibia and the attachment of the patella tendon. And then we use a broad flat osteotome to make a one centimeter thick and six centimeter long osteotomy. Once that's done, then we got to go over to the, since we do the osteotomy from lateral to medial, it's at a 90 degree angle at the end. Uh, we have to go out and free it up from those medial soft tissues so we can pull it distally. Once we've done that, then we have to go back to the distal portion and decide how much we want to take out. And if we're taking out 
10 or 12 or however many millimeters of bone, then we remove another 10 or 12 millimeters of bone uh, parallel to that cross cut that we made at the tibial tubercle and then pull the tubercle down. Once we do that, we provisionally fix it with a K wire once we have it where we need it to be. And then we use a T plate, uh, a, a third tubular T plate from the small fragment set uh, that can get at least one, that can get one screw distally and as many screws as we can into the uh, tibial tubercle piece on the anterior surface of the tubercle. And we do those again in lag screw technique on the tibial tubercle fragment where we over drill the proximal cortex to make sure we get good compression across that fracture site. And uh, once we started doing that, I feel, felt like patients were much quicker to be able to have leg control and lift their leg, and we felt a lot more secure with our fixation. Going back to the surgical planning piece, when you're deciding how far to distalize the tubercle, you had mentioned you use a couple different views, mainly uh, the lateral view and the quad contraction lateral now, going into more detail on that, are you using just a very simple measurement on that, or are you looking at certain landmarks and analyzing that and determining how far you want to distalize that tubercle? I think the quad contraction lateral is the one that I that I put the most on as far as making that making that measurement. I want to make sure that the J sign is reduced. So the J sign meaning that if when the when the knee comes into full terminal extension, if it comes out of the trochlear groove and the patella moves laterally in kind of a J shape, uh, we want that to go away. So we want to make sure that when the knee's in full extension, that the patella doesn't come up above the very top of the trochlear groove. So that extension quad contraction lateral measure from the bottom of the the inferior articular surface of the patella uh, to the top of the trochlea, uh, that that is the main measurement that I use. However, I also look at those other views to see, you know, if the patient has a, for example, if the patient has a 62 millimeter tendon, so about 12 or 13 millimeters above average, and then we do that quad contraction lateral, and it's nine millimeters above the top of the trochlea, and then we do that 60 degree lateral and Blumen sets line about is about 11 millimeters above the Blumensatz line. Then I'll look at all the three of those, and one of them was nine, one of them was 11, one of them's 12, and I pick probably 12, the the bigger of the three, uh, to make sure that we get those all reduced back to what we feel like is a is a normal amount. So you know, I think over time we've gotten a little more aggressive with doing that. Dr. Shelbourne and myself, you know, used to feel like if we went more than above about a centimeter, we were starting to get nervous about pulling it down too far, over constraining the patella, losing flexion uh, or potentially increasing contact stresses in the patella and leading to patellofemoral arthritis like the old Hauser procedures. But as we inched further and further down, feeling more comfortable with higher degrees of distalization, we just haven't seen that happen. So now we feel a lot more comfortable in being able to do that. Now, earlier you had mentioned that the post-op instructions and really that initial time point after surgery for the triots or the medial osteotomies was very similar to the soft tissue procedure of the medial implication and lateral release alone without the tibial tubercle osteotomy. What does that look like for the distalizations in terms of what you're instructing these patients to do early on after surgery? Well, with the distalization, of course, we've completely detached the patella tendon attachment and we've moved it distally. So we definitely tighten the quad by by doing that. So even so, intraoperatively, once we've gotten all the screws tightened, we've got the osteotomy made. We have it where we want it. We've fixed it with the screws, and even after we've done our our uh, release and imbrication proximally, then we'll bend the knee and see how far we can go before there starts to be a lot of tension on the uh, on the fixation. And usually, we can get up well past 90 degrees to 100. 110, 120 degrees before we feel like there's too much tension. However, uh, we still, in the early time period, really just 
stop people at 90 degrees. We want them to try, kind of take what's free and easy, uh, what they can tolerate, but we usually stop them at 90 degrees is kind of a maximum. And then if the patient comes back at that two week visit, one week, two week visit and says 90 degrees is easy and I can do that and I don't even feel like it hurts and I don't feel like I'm putting too much stress on my knee to be able to do that, then we'll start inching things uh, a little bit forward. So, you know, it's, it's, the, it's a little more art than science when it comes to the distillizations uh, taken into account how tight the knee was during surgery, taking into account how good you feel about your fixation and your um, and your imbrication, uh, and then also asking the patient, does that feel like you can do that easily? And if I'm telling a patient they can only go to 90, and they say I can, uh, and they say I can only get to 70, and it feels really tight, and I feel like if I go any further than that, that I'm going to explode, something's going to explode in my knee, then I'm definitely not telling them to keep on going to 90. But and then vice versa, the, the the opposite is true. If I if the patient says I can get to 90 easy, I don't even feel like I'm putting much tension or pain on my knee at all, then we will start to allow them to gradually increase the degree of knee flexion uh, as we move along. Do you notice any difference with those patients based on how far they were distalized or any other intraoperative parameters that you would notice say, hey, yeah, I feel like this person's going to get their flexion back easy versus somebody in the operating room. You say, yeah, things are just going to be a little tighter for this patient after surgery. Are you able to pick up on that intraoperatively or is that kind of a crapshoot after surgery? I think the answer is yes, that uh, especially earlier on in my experience with these, I wouldn't feel as comfortable pushing on them too much in surgery. And then, you know, if the patient can only get to 70 or 80 degrees, then I'm telling people to really slow down. Now, as I've gotten more aggressive, putting in a little more, few more screws than I used to and doing it with lag screw technique to really get good compression across that fracture site, I feel like I felt a lot better about letting them be a little more aggressive with the early flexion and, um, and, and also with active knee extension of being able to lift their leg even the day of or a couple days after surgery if they can do it easily a lot of times i'll allow it to I'll allow it to happen if i feel good about our fixation so the answer is yes sometimes you don't feel as good about the fixation you have to limit people but the more of these i've done the more comfortable i've gotten with them the less often that has happened now hearing you talk about these uh, these procedures especially the distalizations it seems like things have evolved even in the past I don't know, five or 10 years. And you know, going back to last week's episode with Dr. Shelbourne, things have definitely evolved over the past 40 years. But in your time of, of seeing these in, in the past, what has it been, 12, 13 years or so, what do you feel like is the is the biggest change for the better that you've seen? Is it fixation? Is it rehab? Is it a, a change in surgical decision-making? What do you feel like has been a good positive change that you've made in the past 10 years that have led to benefits for your patients? Yeah, you know, when I looked at Dr. Shelbourne's older cases, a lot of times it was a little bit of a shorter and thinner osteotomy. And my, my experience being more of a joint replacement surgeon, uh, in addition to doing these sports medicine cases, um, I was able to learn from those techniques that you know, we prefer a little bit thicker and a little bit longer osteotomy. So I t I've over time, as I've gone along in my practice, even the last 10 years, I've started to make a little bit longer and a little bit thicker of an osteotomy to make sure we have a really robust tibial tubercle piece for fixation. I've also got Got, we've gotten a little more comfortable uh, moving the moving the tubercle down farther than we used to. So there have been patients that we've moved it down 15 millimeters or more, uh, which definitely makes us a little bit nervous. But we've had good results with that, and we have not noticed any problems with that uh, since we started doing that. And then also using uh, lag screw, kind of more fracture techniques uh, that I didn't use previously. I think that's allowed me to get much better compression across the fracture site, much better fixation, and uh, allowed us to be a little bit more aggressive post-surgery with therapy. 
Now, we talked about these three surgeries really in isolation, but in, in reality, these can be done together. You know, somebody may have to have their tubercle medialized and distalized. So you do a triot with a distalization. When you combine these types of surgeries with one another, are you changing anything from a post-op rehab or is there, or is their prognosis any different if it's combined versus isolated? I don't know that the prognosis is any different, but the addition of distalization definitely does make us less, a little bit less aggressive with the post-op rehabilitation. I think if somebody has an isolated imbrication release or has an imbrication release along with a triot, I, I think we're more aggressive in those patients. Once the distalization is added, if it's either an isolated distalization or a distalization plus one or both of the other two options, uh, that's where things get a little bit more dicey and we, we're a little bit less aggressive with the early rehab. Well, excellent. I think you uh, did a great job explaining the technique of these three and how they may have implications for things like rehab. So I appreciate you going over that in such detail. But before we wrap up, do you have any final thoughts on the surgical technique or how this ties into uh, treating these patients? Yeah, I really think it's important to make the connection between our first episode and this episode when it comes to what is the right surgery for each patient? If we learned anything from Dr. Shelbourne's uh, episode last week, it was the evolution over time of finding out that it's not a one-size-fits-all approach, uh, that some people need to be moved. Some people just need an isolated soft tissue procedure. Some people need to be moved distally. Some people need to be moved medially. And some people need a co combination of those. So as we go back to the classification system, if we think about types one and two, in those patients, there is no predisposing anatomy. They don't have patella alta. They don't have a lateral line patella on the uninvolved side. So we think it's an isolated soft tissue problem. If you're going to operate on a type one or type two, medial imbrication lateral release is probably your go-to operation uh, of the ones that we that we do. Um, and when it comes to the types three and four, uh, that's where the anatomic changes come in play, come into play and we start cutting the tubercle and moving it around. In type three, there's no asymmetry side to side on that merchant's view, but the patient does have predisposing anatomy, either a either patella alta or a lateral line patella or both. Um, and in those cases, we're cutting the tibial tubercle. If it's high, we move it down. If it's lateral, we move it medial. If it's both, we do both. And then when it comes to the type four patients, to so the patients who have asymmetry and they have predisposing anatomy, then that's what we call the full meal deal around our, our office when the patient gets the soft tissue realignment proximally and then the distal realignment with a tibial tubercle osteotomy, moving it medial, distal, or both. Uh, so I think the connection between episodes, you know, taking what we learned from Dr. Shelburne in episode two and then making the connection between the evaluation uh, and classification system and putting that together with the surgical techniques is really the whole package. Excellent. And I think you hit the nail on the head with that. You know, the whole point of doing these multiple part series on these topics is to have them build on each other and, and learn from week to week in terms of how these fit together. And I think that's a great example of learning from how the classification system is, is developed and how we currently have it. And that leads to what surgery is performed and, and how it's done. And eventually that will lead us into the rehab after surgery, which is next week's episode where we're going to have one of our physical therapists from the office on to discuss, again, the uh, non-operative treatment of patellofemoral instability. But we're also going to get into a lot of detail about 
how the rehab is constructed after Dr. Benner and Dr. Shelbourne do the three surgeries that we talked about tonight. So join us next week for that rehab episode. If you want to get in contact with us, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the SKC podcast. You can follow us on our SKC podcast, YouTube or Facebook pages, or you can email us at the SKC podcast at gmail.com. And remember, wherever you get your podcasts, if you could leave us a review and a comment so the uh, other listeners can see that as they go by. Other than that, we'll see you guys next week. Thank you.